Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I would also like to mention that our next Elwin Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future volume is now available. This volume contains 12 incredibly talented authors and 12 brilliant illustrators selected by some of your favorite names in science fiction and fantasy. I promise that if you are a fan of science fiction or fantasy, you will find new voices you will love. And if you're an aspiring writer or illustrator, these stories and illustrations provide the benchmark of quality necessary to break into the ranks of professionals. Rise to Future anthologies are available wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia. We're currently in Hollywood at the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Workshop Week, and I'm here with one of our previous published finalists in Volume 19, and now a judge, one of our beloved judges, Nadia Korafor. And we're going to talk about many of the things she has done in her career. Let's see, I've read Binti, I've read Akata Witch, Who Fears Death, Akata Warrior, I haven't read Lagoon yet, Binti Home, so I've read quite a bit of your work. I haven't read any of your graphic novels or comics yet, so please forgive me. Oh, no problem. <laughs> but anyway, welcome, Nettie. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so um, you're one of the people I've been following your career since I first met you way back when you were presenting. We got these various photos, and we posted yeah. this one. as like people say, she never ages. She never <laughs> ages. And we put these photos up on, on my social media with you, with uh, – uh, I think Tim Powers presented you uh, one of the certificates, and you were there with Brian Hales, who illustrated your story. And we looked at them and went, yeah, she was younger. Yep. <laughs> A lot younger. <laughs> yes, yes. But anyway, so yours is an amazing career, and you've got um, something that most people don't have to deal with, but nevertheless, you have to deal with it, and that is, who or what is Nettie Akora for? Because <laughs> you're... The Shuri creator of of all those comics with with uh, Marvel, you've got all this, you know, the books I just said right there. Each one are, are different mm-hmm. aspects of the genres. You're working on movie projects, TV projects, mm-hmm. and you've got various things in your pocket. You're not showing me of other things mm-hmm. coming up. So, just as a recap of how you got started into writing, because that's also just its own totally cool story. Because you definitely were not a writer when you first started on those tennis courts. Mm-hmm. So. Please. <laughs> yeah. Um, boy, the way all of this started, it's, it's, it's even, even for me, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and I could have never, I could have never seen this coming. I, I grew up, I loved, I loved books. Mm-hmm. I loved stories. I loved, I loved reading. I spent lots of time in the library um, just, just poring over all kinds of books. And I loved this. I loved nonfiction and fiction. I was reading books about bugs, space, you know, just like, like I, I just, I loved a lot of different subjects, but also fiction as well. And there was no, no specific genre. I just read a lot. I just, right. I loved reading. I was a late reader. And once I started reading, I just loved doing it. So, so that was the only sign that I would be doing what I'm doing today. Everything else? No. Um, 
from, from a young age, I was an athlete, you know, from zero, basically. I come from an <laughs> athletic family. My sisters are athletes. My brother is an athlete. My parents were, were both athletes as well. So I come from an athletic family. And um, for me, the sport that, well, I would say the sport that was chosen for me, my parents loved tennis. This was before Venus and Serena and all of that. They just loved tennis. And they, they played tennis. They loved tennis. So they put their athletic daughters in tennis. I did every sport. And they were like, okay, we want you guys to play tennis. So, so from the age of nine to 19, and 19 is the magical age, um, I played played tennis. And we, my sisters and I were all, we're each one year apart. I'm the youngest. And uh, I have two two older sisters, and um, we took to tennis really strongly. We just right. like it wasn't just that my parents loved it when they put us in; we were good at it. <laughs> we were really good at it. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, I, we we all started playing tennis, and we all started um, competing in it. They put us in tournaments, and and we were competing. At, we ended up competing at the national level, and the, basically the semi pro level. And that was how I saw the United States for the first time was on the. T- through the tennis court. We that's the first time I came to California was to play tennis, play the nationals. So um so that was very central, central to my life. And uh not just tennis though, even just running fast. I loved, I loved running fast. I loved, I always imagined myself being in a marathon. You know, I love long distance running. I just love the, the feel of it, the physical feel of it. Love jumping. Did gymnastics as well. My mom took me out of gymnastics when she saw me do a no-handed cartwheel. I was doing those all the time, but my mom saw me do one. She's like, no, we're done with that. So <laughs> very athletic kid. Athletics were central to my life. Um, and, and from the age of nine, we started playing, we started competing. And then we ended up competing in the nationals and, and at the national level. And then when I was in high school, I took one, like one half year off for, um, to, to, to run track as well. My parents both did track. I always had wanted to do track, but tennis was so the focal point. So I took this small period of time to, to run track and found out I was very good at that too. And um, went to state in multiple multiple events, placed in state with basically no training, won over 22 medals, was named Female Athlete of the Year in Illinois, you know, like uh, All-State Athlete of the Year in Illinois. And um, so, yeah, obviously, yeah, very athletic, loves <laughs> sports. I love sports. And... Um, and also, like, my interests were not not necessarily in literature. I wasn't very good in literature. Yeah. I loved the sciences. So it was math and science were my focuses. And uh, what I wanted to be, I, I loved bugs, and um, I wanted to study <laughs> bugs. I wanted to be an entomologist. So that was, like, my goal. So I was in athletics, and I was on the tennis team. So I did my one year in track, but then returned to tennis for uh, when I went to the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And then also wanted to be an entomologist. That was Nettie. And then, so when I was 13, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. I grew very quickly in a short period of time. I went from average height to tall in like six months, grew several inches. And they feel like that might have been what what caused the scoliosis. Also, tennis, my um, game was dominated by the right side of my body, had a power forehand and a serve. And so there's that. And so... Scoliosis is is pretty common, and both of my sisters had it. My brother ended up having it. Theirs was normal. You know, you did exercises, you stabilized it. But for me, mine was very, very aggressive, and it might have had to do also with me being very skinny. And so my 
even though I was doing all of these sports, even though I was, you know, athlete of the year, all of this stuff, my scoliosis was progressing very quickly. And so by the time I was a, a freshman, the end of my freshman year in college, they did an x-ray and they said that, my doctor said that if I didn't have this corrected, that I would be, I would be um, crippled by the time I was 25 and my life would be significantly shortened. And this was, you know, doing all these athletics and I'm just doing, like I'm able to run faster, jump higher, do all these things better than most people. I was just a little crooked. So it was weird. And I didn't have any pain or anything. So it was weird, a weird thing to learn. Right. But I mean, I knew I had to have the surgery. It was like, you know, it was, it was, it was um, not something I could avoid. I knew I had right. to have it. And there's a 1% chance of paralysis when you're working with the spine. And uh, so went in, had the surgery, woke up, paralyzed from the waist down. And they did not know if I would ever walk again. I was in that 1% of people who react mysteriously to, um, to the surgery with paralysis. And so they didn't know why I was paralyzed, and they didn't know if I would ever walk again. So you take an athlete like that, and you just paralyze them. And they're in a hospital bed where they can't even, like half their body has disappeared. They can't even turn to the side. Um, you take some, someone like that and do that to them, something's going to happen. And for me, it was in the first few days where I knew that if I didn't figure something out, I would just, I, I would break. My mind would break. And what I figured out was I had a copy of Isaac Osmo's iRobot that a friend of mine had brought. And I had, I had never read it before. Right. And I was like, what is this? I, I, I was interested in reading it, but I was in too much pain to read it. And so I just started writing this story on the edges of the of the page on the edges of the pages around the words. And there was something about writing those stories and also focusing my eye and um and just kind of falling into the story, falling into the motion of the pen, all of that that made everything quiet. Like it just made everything everything around me that was just bouncing and in chaos and screaming it kind of just aligned everything. And that was really the beginning of how I started writing. That was how I discovered storytelling. That was how I discovered writing. It was in that, that moment. And so once you figure something out like that, you want to do it all the time. And so like <laughs> from that point on, like that point I was writing and writing and writing whatever would come to me, whatever stories that were in my head, I was writing them. And that first story that I wrote was about a woman who could fly. And when you look at that, um, when, you, when you can fly, you don't have to walk. So you could see where that, the foundation of that was coming from. Um, but, but really, to make a long story short, I spent that whole summer relearning how to walk, using the training from athletics to do that. And there was some luck involved too, because to this day, they don't know why the sensation returned to my legs, but it didn't return 100%, but enough where I went from a walker to a half walker to a wheel, um, to a uh, cane, and I returned to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana that fall. So I wow. left that summer and then returned in the fall using a cane after that whole ordeal. Because my, fa my family's very disciplined. You don't, nothing stops you from doing what you need to do. So I returned using a cane, but I also returned as a writer. So that was really how it all, how it all really started for me and how everything, because everything that was before that, all of the plans that I had were crushed and destroyed and in a lot of ways reordered. Right. You know, my whole life was just, re my identity, everything was reordered. 
Now, was that story that you that you entered? Was that Windseeker? Was that the story that you entered and got published? That was was that the story that you conceived or that? That's the character. That's the character um, that I started writing. Like it was for me. My 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 stories have always always start with character. They always start with voices in my head, right. like a voice talking to me, and it was her. It was Arroyo who was talking to me in the hospital that day, and she was very, she was mean, a <laughs> <laughs> little, little bit scary, but really, really interesting. And that's, yeah, that's, that's the character that, um, that wound up becoming the story Windseekers, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was um, an amazing story. I mean, I, I love those stories. Yeah, I wasn't, because I'm not that familiar with that genre of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Now I am, <laughs> having read some of your stories. Yeah. Okay, so you did that, and w- at what point did you find out about Writers of the Future? That, okay, so okay, so I went, went on my writing journey, returned, and uh, took creative writing classes that opened the doors to me, to me for like what writing was, all that. And, and as, the more I discovered about, about writing, the more I fell in love with it. I was just enamored by it. And then Writers of the Future... Okay, I, I I learned about writers of the future later on um, after I graduated from the University of Illinois, and then I took uh, I went. This was either just after I had my master's in, in journalism, um, where I learned about Clarion. It was Clarion. I was in the Clarion Writers Workshop, which was a whole that that was a yeah. that was a big thing. That was there were certain these were there were levels that I needed to discover as a a writer of speculative fiction because right. I started writing in the university. Like first I started writing in the hospital. Then I, I just I understood what creative writing was and studied writing in the university, which is a specific type of writing, right? That can stifle certain types of voices. So that was that was happening to me. Or was it was trying to happen to me, but it wasn't working. Right. You know, because nothing could stifle what I was going to write. But I I learned about um uh, the Clarion Writers Workshop. That was from Nalo Hopkinson. Like I, I met her at a book signing, and she told me about the Clarion Writers Workshop because she's like, you need to be exposed to more science fiction and fantasy writers. And so when I took Clarion, that really opened my mind to a new world that wasn't um, academic creative writing. And then in Clarion, that was where I learned about writers of the future. Okay. And so it's like just another level of meeting the people that I needed to meet, the types of writers that I needed to needed to um, to interact with yeah good so now okay so then so you came out to was it in los angeles that, yeah for year that year yeah so yeah. that was the first time i was in l that was my first time in la and it was my first time being in california not for tennis so okay. <laughs> it was exciting so what was it like in that week because you were then you already you already done clarion and mm-hmm. now this you came out here for rise of the future what was it like how was it different Oh yeah, it was. Um, it blew my mind because, like, first I was in Los Angeles, so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's that. Like, just, just kind of, I was just making connections left and right. Then I was with these. It was like I was with these um, new writers, who many of who already had like a lot of experience and who were already really good. Right. Like they were already really good, so that so that was really cool. And then and then the um, the writers workshop was different from the university. 
Yeah, and it was different from it was more it was it, it was like Clarion was one type of writers workshop, but but um the Writers of the Future workshop was more um it was like more profession oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, which was something that I totally needed at the time because like I had I was like a blank slate. You know, <laughs> I was a blank slate and I had no context and so it was it was just really it was just really eye-opening for me because I, I was coming from such a different a different world, even though I was writing about these crazy places like everyone else that I was meeting, but I was coming from the outside, you know, and it was like um it was just it was it was really necessary for me, you know. Right. So anything in particular you remember during that uh, that week with either the judges or the essays or anything like that? Um I remember the the workshops were like I was I wouldn't say I was obsessed with them, but I was like really into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was re- just really into just absorbing all those, uh, like th- absorbing the workshops. And I remember um, Tim Powers' workshop. I just found it all really useful. And then just um, meeting the illustrators as well was mm-hmm. really cool because I'd never met, I'd never met illustrators. <laughs> and then I was seeing their work, and I was like. This is you guys made this. I, I, it was just, oh man, it was. It was um, like I said, it was a blank slate. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> it was a blank slate. So it was really, it was just a lot. Like all of it, all of it was new to me. All of it was, um, it, it was just a lot. It was a lot of learning about a world that I needed to that I needed to know about. I didn't have a lot of writer friends. Yeah, you know, um, and like I said, I'd never met illustrators, and it was just, it was really, it was just really eye opening. Awesome. Okay, so now, um, are you still in touch with any of the people in your year? Yeah, um, Pat Rothfuss, definitely. We talk every so often. Yeah. Um, oh man. Oh gosh, who else was in my year? Because I know I talked to several people. Uh, and we like social media. We still follow each other there, and we kind of keep in touch. And like, even if we don't talk, I know we're all just like we always check up on each other in quiet ways. So mm-hmm. yeah, David Levine. Yep. That's yeah, David Levine. Definitely um, kept up with him. Carl Frederick. I remember Carl Frederick, and I every so often I try to see what he's up to and how he's doing. You know, actually, a lot of a lot of people in my in my year, I still follow in some way. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. All right. So now, since then, you've had an amazing, skyrocketing career. So, how did it evolve? And I want this also from the from the perspective of what you've done and how you've like you've created heavily into the the fantasy of is it gen- is it called general african fa- fantasy or what's what's the actual subgenre yeah well what i call it what it is <laughs> african futurism and african jujuism which is basically african fantasy you know um and yeah I, I, it's been boy uh it's been a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a lot. A, a lot has evolved since since then. And and I would say that, and I, I do want to say that um, the Writers of the Future contest was really pivotal for me because, one, it was the first time that I was treated like 
like royalty as a yeah. as a writer. I mean, how often does that happen where you you just you you're treated like what you do is really really special? You know, we we come here and then the there's the the writing workshop and then there's the award ceremony, which is which is like a beautiful thing. Um, you know, you walk the red carpet, <laughs> so that was the first time doing that. Not my thing, but but it was definitely an experience and getting all dressed up and all of that. So that was that was big for me. Um, and 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 I would say that also like it's just it's good to be celebrated as a writer. It just gives you because so much of your creation time is alone. You it's spent quiet alone, not necessarily questioning what you do, but questioning how others will perceive it. All of that. So it definitely fed. Something it fed a hunger that I had as a writer. Yeah, but yeah. What, what was the question? Because I know there is more. There. So yeah, so you write into the you know what you call it, you know what you call that sub that subgenre, and the people listening to this specifically on uh, aspiring writers, like you stick to your guns on you know you decide mm -hmm. what you want to write and you stick within that, at least on these novels, you know into that world and. Now, have you defined that genre, or is that you've written into that and you uphold it? Um, African Jujuism and African Futurism are two words that I coined. Okay. And um, and and they're they are and the reason why I coined them was because I was writing these stories, and mind you, I didn't specifically write them. I, I wasn't writing to a genre. Like, I, I can't control what I write. Right. There's, I can't control it at all. <laughs> Whatever comes, comes. But, like, when I look at the the um, the library of my work, I can see that it is a specific, like, a lot of it is, is in these two specific groupings. Right. And the words for categories that are out there, we're not describing them properly. Like af Afrofuturism does not describe what it is that I'm doing right. at all. So that's why I had to coin these two, I guess you would call them um, genre genre titles or labels or whatever. But like when it comes to what, what I write, I don't, it's not something that I I'm not capable of writing to anything. I'm like always just whatever comes is what comes, you know. Right. Yeah. Because you've got these these books that you've created this this series, so because you, you've got science fiction in there as well as fantasy, mm -hmm. so that right. also makes it like wow, this is it's a unique form of subgenre that you hit both science fiction as well as fantasy, mm. you know, on what on what you create there, and then you got the other side where you've got the whole Marvel world that you. Are also Definitely, very much known for, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for that for that audience who really enjoys the um, Black Panther world. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of of doing that, so your writing process, because we talked before and you said, well, writing your, your writing time isn't just sitting down typing on on the keyboard. It's also even the more involved part is leaving, leading up to that part. So talk about your writing process, mm -hmm. please. Yeah, um, my writing process is very organic and broad. Yeah. So like if, if well, half of them, I don't even know when I'm going to write something. <laughs> so I don't know. I can't say that when I want to write this novel. It wasn't so much that. It, it's usually the stories that I write start off with voices like uh, a character talking to me. My characters talk to me. And then as they talk and tell me what it is that they have to say, 
the world kind of starts coming to light. So there's that. So as this is happening, like I'm going to the gym, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking outside. I spend a lot of time where I'm not doing, I, I have like, I have a, the, the way that I schedule, like the way that I schedule my life, I have a lot of time where I'm not doing anything. I have to not, and when I say not doing anything, it's like not, it's not that I'm just sitting there not doing anything. It's just, it's like um, unstructured. Right. It's unstructured. So, so those times where, and, and my daughter knows this well, so she understands when I'm writing. Because mm-hmm. the average person would look at me and they would not know that I'm writing and they'll just start to be like, oh, why don't we do this? Or why don't we do that? I'm like, no, I'm writing. Um, so I have like a lot of unstructured time where anything can pop into my mind, where I'm like f- free and open and, and able to see and, and respond to and interpret the world around me. So that could be when I'm at the gym. That could be when I'm out just doing something outside, pulling weeds outside or taking a shower or whatever. Like those are all things that lead up to when I sit down to spit out what it is that I've collected in my head. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. Now you've got however many master's degrees and PhD. (laughs) So how much does that work towards your writing process? Not that I'll just leave that question like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I have a master's in journalism, a master, or a bachelor's in rhetoric, which is creative writing, a master's in journalism, and then another master's in literature with an emphasis in creative writing, then a PhD in literature with an emphasis in creative writing. So that means my dissertation was a novel, which was The Shadow Speaker. Okay. So that, like, like all of that, so the way all of that plays into my writing is in a in a way that like, it's not that I went to school to study writing. So my, my degrees are in literature, which means I wasn't studying writing. I was studying writing. <laughs> you know, okay. like, does that make sense? I wasn't studying, like I was studying books. Yeah. You know, um, and there were a lot of classes that I hated taking and, had to, and learned a lot from taking those classes, like literary theory. I hated literary theory, but I learned a lot that I use in my stories in literary theory. So like the way that my degrees play into me being a writer, one, I started off writing in the university. So I started writing in my sophomore year in college. So lots of creative writing classes, but a lot of the stuff that I, that I was writing, I was not workshopping. So no one would see that. It was like, but so there's that, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's that. And then the classes that I took, especially in my, um, when I did my bachelor's, because I I was kind of like trying to figure out what I wanted to major in while I was trying to figure out this writing thing, because I did a complete 180. I started off pre-med, and then next thing you know, I wanted to be a writer. So I was was in philosophy, psychology major, a sociology major. I was like different majors. So that meant classes in in those areas. And those classes, even though that's not what I got my degree in, I learned things. Right. I learned things in those classes, like that I that I shelved in the back of my mind. So I was like, all of my degrees really were me. I was collecting all this information. And I was the biggest thing, and one of the biggest things that I learned with my PhD was learning how to learn. Like I learned how to learn. And my my journalism degree taught me how to look at media, like mm-hmm. and understand the layers of media and understand the voices and the um how how 
every form of media is subjective. So I learned that like all these, so all of these different things that you think would not play into writing fiction or science fiction and fantasy did. Like all everything that I took, everything in that I had that I had my that I got my degrees in, like all the classes that I took, they are at work in the stories that I write. No, that makes yeah. sense. I was just curious how that fit in, so that people getting to know Nettie Accor for that they understand that this is that's part of your who yes. you are, and that that leads to the depth of character that you do with mm-hmm. you know on these on these books. I mean, some of your stuff there on. It gets really gritty. Yeah, you get very gritty in there, and it's like, I, I have to yeah. assume you know, I was, I've been totally willing to suspend any disbelief, and so some of that grittiness is like, is that really real? Is that what happened? And yeah, you're shaking your head, yes. And it's yeah. like, wow, that's that's intense. Yeah, that's the journalism part because yeah. like a lot of the stuff when it goes when in my work when it go when I get really dark, like yeah. who fears death? Yeah, the stuff in who fears death. Those at the the darkest parts of that book, those are real. Like that, I was that researching. Was, I was like, like, wow. Yeah, that that was that's why it reads that way because that stuff was that's that's real. The yeah. invading warriors coming in and yeah. killing all the guys and raping all the women. Yeah. So like wow, that, that was, was real. Like, yep. That was like it was like uh, yep. you know reading. It wasn't it. easy to write either. <laughs> yeah. Writing it like I was processing the stories that women told in their voices. Right, like the like I, and I will say that like one of the things that I will don't think I'll do again was that. Yeah. <laughs> that was really unpleasant, but I, I something was pushing me to do it, and um, and the voices, those those were real, and I was like um, I was mirroring them, and sometimes putting things in there word for word, you know. So really? yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was just amazing, but it was so. So graphic, yeah. But it also, I had to turn the page and say, okay, so what happens and how she, what's going to be the redeeming mm-hmm. thing at the end of the story? It's there because that's your storytelling too. Mm-hmm. Even as as great as it was, I know there's got to be some redemption at the end. Yep. So somehow or another, something's going to happen that like gives the uh, the conclusion of like, okay, good. Yep. You know exactly. We can keep on continuing with life. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now on um for the aspiring writer, what words of advice or tips we're gonna get into the, the movie stuff and, and the AI stuff in a little bit, but just in terms of the um aspiring writer, what tips or advice do you have for them on how to move forward if they're like they want to start but initial baby steps? Um the first I mean the main thing is to do it. Yeah. Like like don't talk about it. Don't dream about it. Like, do it. You don't have to have everything together to start. Right. Start and see where it goes. And like, even if you're, even if you're terrified of writing something, of writing some story, you think it's going to be terrible. Just ignore that voice. That voice is always going to be there saying that it's terrible. And just, just start and do mm-hmm. it. Like I, like for me, I don't wait. If I have a story in my mind that that if something pops into my mind, I'm literally I'll start writing it right there. I'll start writing it right there and and see where and see where it goes. So like, yeah, I think that's that's my my biggest piece of advice is to do it. Good, good. That helps a lot. That now you're you've got like five projects going with Hollywood right now. Yeah. 
So a little bit about that, because it's great. I love the, I mean, I love the one you're doing with Viola Davis is, is pretty amazing, but a little bit about what you're doing with your Hollywood projects. Yeah, um, they are, oh boy, they are all in different capacities. So I've got projects with, um, with HBO, Amazon, Studios, can I say the other ones? Okay, that one's with Amazon Studios. We'll just say in other places. The other one. Yeah, in other places that you will recognize. (laughs) (laughs) And um, they're they're in different capacities, and like each with each one, I have learned what I need. Like I I I am not one to um, kick myself for things that I think are our mistakes, even though, yeah, maybe I've kicked myself a little bit, but I learned from my mistakes, yeah. you know? And, and um, so I, each time I've learned more and more and more. So, so the most recent one, for example, the most recent one, I am in the driver's seat. Like I am writing the script, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I am an executive producer and I, ha- anyone that, that comes on board, I have to okay. Like, and these are things cool. that I've learned <laughs> along the way from like each one, each, uh, each dealing. So, um, yeah, that's what, that's what those are. Like, uh, I, I've learned at this point, I've definitely learned how to write a pilot. I know how to write a pilot. I know how to write an episode. I know how to break down a season. I know how to break down each episode. I know how to write a treatment. Um, I know how to write a feature film. And these are all things that I've learned along the way, but especially by doing them over and over and over and over, and then hearing feedback, and then also working with people who've done it many times. So mentors and, type. Thing. Yeah, me, but but like I'd say like George R. R. Martin definitely is the only person I've ever had who was like a mentor to me. Okay. You know, like I can if I I can call him up and ask him, you know, like what do you, what should I do in this situation? I have no idea, and he will know. You know, so that's like, but that's like late in my career. Like we started working together, what, in 2014, you know? So before that, I'd never, never had a mentor. But like one, one bit of advice that I would give is if you are working with more experienced writers, be humble and listen. Like be open to be like, and sometimes experienced writers can be very, um, harsh and mm-hmm. <laughs> harsh in their criticism and all that. Don't let criticism crush you. Be able to listen. Be able to um, take the criticism, and and if it does crush you a bit, go cry in a different room. <laughs> but but always be able to take in take in the advice because like those lessons are there that you where you can learn them, and mm-hmm. you'll be better off as after you learn them, even if it's a painful thing. Yeah, I get it. So are you? Is it a, like obviously writing your books is is fun. That's your that's your career. That's my foundation. How is it now in Hollywood working with them? Yeah, it's because different. You got your baby that someone mm-hmm. else is now starting to uh, wet nurse. <laughs> <laughs> You'll always have your book. That's what I advice from George R.R. Martin. Yes, that, that you always will have your book. And I, I've had to tell myself that like a mantra at some times because I've seen... Um, I've seen things, <laughs> uh, I've seen, like, I've seen the spectrum at this point. I've seen wonderful interpretations of, like, ad- adaptations of my work. And I've seen the worst adaptation I've ever, like, like, how, what are you doing type of adaptation. So it's like, in, in both, both regards, I always have my book, 
But the wonderful adaptations are are a lot of fun. It's like your book has just like grown wings and just become so much more. And that's like, that's a beautiful thing. Like that, that was a learning experience in and of itself because it's like, as a novelist, you are the God of your world and you, you, you do everything. It's you. Right. And when you see someone else take your work and grow it in this wonderful way that much more, it's, it's, it's humbling, but it's also, um, I don't know. It's, it's a lesson that I think novelists, if that, that, uh, it's a privilege for novelists to learn. You know, that Good. someone else can grow their, their work. Like it, it, something, a story that they created, someone else can come along and make it even bigger and, and, and lusher. That's, you know, yeah, I think that's a good lesson for novelists to learn. Awesome. So is it fair to say that you have favorite projects or at least to ask that question? Yeah. In terms of the, the, um, the adaptation stuff? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're definitely... <laughs> Um, certain projects that are, yeah, that are my favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are some. <laughs> I can say usually with books, I can't say that, but like with it, with this, yeah, there are some that where I'm like, it, it, it involves the the people that I'm working with and the way that the adaptation is going, and um, it's like there's a momentum with it where it's like I'm adding stuff and then they're adding stuff and it's just we're both like and it, so it's just growing and and moving faster and faster and we're farther along and then there's a respect as well like mm-hmm. where where I feel respected as um as the writer and and also as the writer who understands screenwriting right you know that's that's a beautiful thing when when I encounter that it's it's very welcome Oh, that's great. <laughs> so now you also have, so that's your Hollywood netty. Mm-hmm. Now we've also got Marvel netty. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that, how that came to be. And then you're like, you've become that one of the key go-to people, what seems to be in the uh, Wakanda universe mm-hmm. for Shuri and stuff. So how did that evolve? Yeah, that's that evolved with an email. An email just landed in my inbox one day, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is Marvel. <laughs> and it had Marvel in the, <laughs> in the title. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, we think you would be good at writing um, writing for us. What do you think? And I was like, okay. And But, like, for me, I don't like to jump into the deep end of the pool when I don't know how to swim. So I'm like, I don't want to do anything big because, like, they had asked me to write, like, a fairly big property of theirs. And I'm like, I'm not ready for that. I'm not. And these are beloved characters. And if I mess anything up, I will hear from, I would hear about it from lots and lots of people. So I, I wanted to start small. I like to start small. Right. I'm learning something new. I like to start small. So I started with a, a, a small short for um, Venomverse. So with, with Venomverse, you don't have to like adhere to anything because right. they have different universes. So yes. I don't have to adhere to any of the Marvel rules. So that I wrote that first short and then they, they, I guess they were watching me closely and they saw how I did with that and I did well with that. And so then they were like, I can't remember which one it was next, if it was Wakanda for, it might've been, um, Wakanda Forever, where I wrote a limited series for about the Dora Milaje, who are the guards of the Black Panther. So, so yeah, then I did, did that, and they liked what I did there. And then they and this was just before the Black Panther film came out. They asked me to write a limited series of T'Challa, 
who's, you know, the Black Panther. And I was like, what? <laughs> that one, I, I, gave, I paused because one, I wasn't sure because I wasn't sure how I felt about Wakanda. So there was that. And like, I know a lot of people would be like, if Marvel came to me and asked me to write something, I'm saying yes. But for me, I don't view it like that. I don't, you know, I, I, I'm a writer. I write novels and I have my own stuff already. So I don't need that. But I, I was willing to, to consider it. And um, yeah, there's some issues that I had with the concept of Wakanda. And what I ended up deciding was that I could address some of those issues from the inside if I wrote this. And I also like the character of T'Challa. He's mm-hmm. a really interesting, um, interesting, flawed, and complex individual. So, so I said yes to that. And that was a really, really great experience. And, and it was like writing for Marvel, their deadlines are very tight. They're, and they're tough and they're relentless. And it was, it was a stressful time for me, even though like at the time I was like dealing with that and then also writing some other, like a novel. <laughs> I think I was writing a novel because that's how I am. And, um, and so I did that. And when I finished that, that limited series, then they were like, okay, would you like to write Shuri? And, when, and I was tired at that time. I was like, I'm done, you guys. Okay, this is enough or whatever. And then they're like, once they mentioned Shuri, Shuri is... Like, she's, she rocks. Yeah, Shuri rocks. Exactly. I'm like, how are you going to come at me with this right now? I, I seriously was ready to walk. I was done. I was done. And they said, oh, would you like to write Shuri? And I'm like, I'm the author of Binti. Of course I would like to write, write Shuri. So, so that, was, and that was an unlimited series, right? So... So I did that for I can't even remember how many issues, but it was it was unlimited and I have other things that I'm working on. And okay, so what happened at that time was I had to tell them I'm like, okay, I can't keep doing this. I've got to like I've got to end it. I've got to tap out. I can't keep doing this because that was when Binti was optioned by Hulu and uh, Media Res, and they wanted me to write the the pilot with a with another writer. So I was like, I can't do all of this, and that that was the reason why I had to step away from um, sure. from writing Shuri. But like, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good reason, right? Yeah. That's a pretty yeah. good reason. But like, the experience was really quite amazing. I was the, like for T'Challa, I was the first woman to ever write his character, like period. And that was great. Like it wasn't something, I wasn't thinking about that. I didn't even realize that. I just thought he was a really amazing character to write, but like, that's literally, literally what I was. And and Shuri, that was the first, um, first unlimited series that, you know, with that character of Shuri, that was before all the books and all of that. So yeah, it was, it was cool. That's very cool. <laughs> have you done anything else in writing comics or graphic novels? Yeah. Um, so I have my LaGuardia graphic novel, and that one—that one's my own um, my own story. And I loved LaGuardia. LaGuardia is how do I even explain it? It's set in the near future with uh, where aliens or extraterrestrials have become part of our society, and we've got like we were dealing with issues of immigration and. Um, and DNA and all these like all these things that I love, I love, love, love dealing with. And and what was cool was that um, LaGuardia went on to win a Hugo and also an Eisner Award. You know, so this was my this was something that I had like spawned from my head, and it was so much fun. It was so much fun. Like that one, 
that one was one of those projects where I really, really enjoyed the process of it. And I worked with Tana Ford. She was the illustrator for that. And Tana Ford, we started working together on the Marvel stuff. That was how we met. Oh. It was through through the Marvel stuff. And um, and we I just loved her work so much. And I loved working with her. And she really enjoyed working with me. And, and so that's what led to us kind of part. Like I... Um, this was with LaGuardia was published by Dark Horse and and Dark Horse asked me they're like oh who would you like your illustrator to be and I said Tana definitely so like that partnership has definitely definitely grown we're now working on another graphic novel called Space the Space Cat and that will be that will be out soon enough but yeah Tana and I have come very far that's amazing yeah. that's great so now one other area that we talked about before starting this podcast is AI, chat GPT, though it's, it's influence on writing mm -hmm. and what the impact it's going to have. Like I said, I've already changed the rules for writers of the future. No AI writing mm -hmm. is admissible. If, if it's found to be done, then you're automatically disqualified. And same thing for the illustrators, you know, so right now it's easier to spot the illustrator because you say, okay, well then, send me your layered files, and mm -hmm. if there's no layered files, then it's computer generated. So what's your take on it? And like, what do you see as, as what's going to happen with this? Yeah, um, I am not a Luddite. <laughs> <laughs> but. I, and I love uh, the concept of, of AI. I love the possibilities. Um, I think that, that they're very useful, and I'm really excited to see how far it goes, uh, how far we, we get with them and how far they get. You know, I'm, I'm really, I'm just, I'm really interested in the, in all of those concepts, but I'm also wary of abusing that technology. Right. And I think that there, there are things that AI can do that human beings cannot do. I think that's where we should focus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's where they should focus. Um, solving problems that we human beings can't solve, like mm, climate change. You know, yeah. AI could be used for that. You know, I'm sure they have some great ideas, but like those things that AI are being used for that human beings already do, I, I'm not sure why that's the. Um, I think it's very telling that as soon as they're available in this way, that that's where people go with it. I think that's very, it's just very telling. It's like we're just doing everything wrongly. Like we're, we're just doing, we're doing the thing and I can yeah. see it. And it's, 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 um, it's frustrating to watch. It's frustrating. Um, and I think that like, wh where do I see it going? I want to be positive about it. I want to, I want to see, I want to see AI do those things that, that we can't, like, I want to see AI compliment us, mm -hmm. compliment us, gr help us become better. I want to see that. I don't want to see. Replace. Yeah. <laughs> so I was trying not to say. Huh. I don't want to see that. And uh, like, let's say there are, let's say an, an AI could write a novel. Like, I, I want to see that as a not a replacement, you know? I mean, it could be, it could be cool to see that happen if it weren't seen as a replacement of what human beings are doing. How about an addition? Like, I mean, like 
so I'm just trying to be, I'm just trying to stay positive about it. But like, yeah, I do see a lot of abuses of it already. Yeah, I've I've seen. You've got creative people, and then mm-hmm. you've got wannabe creative people. Yes. Wannabes are your chat GPT, mm-hmm. and your creatives don't need it. Fortunately, there's no. You're not going to be able to get uh, copyright. There was one book that got issued, given copyright, and then it got rescinded when it said, "Okay, good, we're not going to copyright because it's not create. It's not original thought. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an amalgam. It's skimming." The internet coming with all these different things, and okay, now we're going to regurgitate something based upon keywords that you put in there. Same thing with art. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, see, I look at it and I see, and someone can say, "Yeah, well, it'll get better and better and better." Yeah. There's this where you, now this gets into other aspects of philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know that you know can an AI be human? Can they be a spirit? You know, like. You got the whole spirituality side mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of life, and no matter what, it's a spirit that creates. A computer doesn't, it can only reimagine, it can only take new stuff, but like what you did with Binti, what you've done with, you know, the things that you've created, mm-hmm. all it could do would take what's it there and reformat to make that. So it's always going to be at least one step behind a creator, mm-hmm. you know? So I do think that, and I do think it's, you got the difference between music and music. Mm-hmm. You've got the people that can afford the poster on the, on the wall versus the person that can buy the painting, mm-hmm. you know? So you've seen the marking of the demise of, of various art forms, but it, you know, opera still exists. Theater still exists. You know, so I think there's going to be that, will survive the computer. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's more than a hope, you know. Yeah. It's one step so. below certainty <laughs> and, and a couple steps above hope. Yeah. Um, but I think that, I mean, that that's true for the extraordinary creative. Mm-hmm. But what about the mediocre? Like, <laughs> like the mediocre creative... <laughs> I can see the AI being able to be on that same level. Like we've got creatives that write derivative stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there are some massively popular, extremely derivative novel series out there. Like I, I could name some, which I won't, but I could name somewhere. I'm like, this is just fan fiction for right, that. Fan fiction, yeah. You know, um, so. But but those people have a place. Like those those creators have a place. Uh, they they deserve to have a place. So it's like I could see AI replacing them mm-hmm. because of like the economic side of it and and what capitalism pushes will lead to that. Especially if the technology keeps improving and imitating. Like right now, you can even tell an AI illustration just by looking at like at least yeah. I can. Yeah, I'm like yeah. I look at that I'm like yeah. <laughs> that that feels and the word I've been using is soulless. Like it doesn't it just yeah. looks flat and soulless. Like I can tell, but at some point it's going to get streamlined and all of that. So I don't know. There's there's there is a philosophical conversation to be had about this. You know, mm-hmm. 
But I don't think that human beings are going to come out on top after that philosophical conversation. I think it's going to it's going to be pretty complicated. I think it's going to get it's going to get complicated. Uh, I think that because of certain flaws that we have within humanity, I think it's going to get problematic. Right. You know, um, but it's coming regardless. There's no, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. It right. is It is here. Um, it's been being written about by science fiction for Yeah, forever. And, yeah. Yeah, and what's going to happen has been written about how many times. We're still doing exactly what the books have shown us, told us not to do. We're still doing, which is fascinating to me as a writer. I'm like, wow. You know, you've got a book that, that says, if you do this, <laughs> this is going to happen. I'm just seeing us doing it. It's, 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 Even your stories that you've got down there, it's post-apocalyptic on, you know, now they they got their various abilities and stuff, but mm-hmm. it's it's been wiped out by atomic explosions, yep. and, you know, now they're trying to rebuild with, you know, in those areas. It's, you know, so there is that side to it as well. Yeah. But um, yeah. there's always going to be, like your, you know, so I went for the high end, and you went for the mediocrity, you know. <laughs> but there's always going to be a place for those like yourself and, and others who are true creatives, mm-hmm. you know. And there is going there is a factor too that somebody, I mean, you seen over the years that someone that that refused to stop making their buggy whips, you know, I got the best buggy whip in the world. <laughs> there's no more buggies. Yeah. You know. So there's that too. You got to be able to move forward yeah. with. You know, with progress as things change. Yeah, agree. You know, so there's that aspect to it as well. Yeah. But anyway, I was I was just curious what you thought of on that because it's um, it's for real. It's, it's happening. It's coming forward. Yeah. Okay. So now we have our last five minutes here. So with conventions, and I am going to put a, a word in for the South Africa Comic Con cool. that you want that you want to be able to uh, participate in that, and so we can get that going. Yep. And, um, but how, what's the value you've seen in, in conventions for yourself or have you? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't do a lot of conventions, but I do, uh, when I do them, I think the big, the biggest value is like the being around the people, being around people, you know, like, and, and, and just kind of absorbing the, um, the energy of being around a lot of people who are obsessed about the same things that you're obsessed about. And it's like, when I'm there, I realize how much I miss that. Like how much I, I am just in a lot of ways, very isolated where I'm just like, Oh my God, they're like people around me. Like we all love Star Wars. And you know, it's that kind of feeling where, where it's just really, it's, it's really refreshing. And then you can have these conversations um, that you can't have anywhere else. Right. And and everybody vibing off of that conversation in a, a similar way. It's it's just it's um it's nice to have that that reminder. That's that's really like for for me, um conventions definitely do that for me the most. Yeah, cuz I obviously I saw you at Dragon Con last year. You were a guest of honor. Yeah. Yeah, that was. And I'm just curious cuz you're known on these for different things mm-hmm. and at a pop culture they're going to be probably more gravitating towards marvel world mm-hmm. than the akata warrior the binti even though you, you have your definite followers with that who know you mm-hmm. oh i love this thing here and maybe we weren't even aware of the 
you know, what you did with Marvel. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. So, you know, so I'm on that side of it, but neither am I Gen Z or Gen A, mm-hmm. you know, which is more probably a, an audience that's going to be familiar with it because they're, they see it, they know everything about Marvel. Mm-hmm. So what's that like for you? It's, um, it's confusing because like, actually it's like, I, I, there was one time where I was doing a signing for Marvel stuff and people kept coming up to me with other stuff. So I'm like, what am I supposed to be prepared to talk about here? So, so it's like, it's confusing because like, I don't know, like when it comes to, when it comes to my audience, it's fairly evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like I, I meet people who are obsessed with Binti. I meet people who are obsessed with the Incibiti script series. I meet people who are obsessed with the Marvel stuff and then Who Fears Death and then even Noor, like different things. And, uh, and it, it even happens during my Q&As where I think, okay, I'm going to be talking about this specific thing. And then I'm having to talk about that over there. So it's, it's, um, it's it's not just sometimes confusing, but it's like hard because I have to like be in the world like because they'll come at me really obsessed about something specific, and so then I have to answer their question on that something specific. Then the next person will come up; it will be something completely different. Sure. So it's like I've noticed that that's how it's been when I go to these these conventions. I can't just settle into okay, it's going to be this thing here. It's it rarely is. It's like. It's it's a lot of it's it could be I don't even know, <laughs> which is it's it's cool because that's how I feel about about my own work where I'm like okay all of my children are my favorites like all of them so it, it's it's um it's a lot of worlds sure it's a lot of worlds so yeah that's amazing so anyway I really appreciate this time that uh, you provided to, to talk to you and I think the fans. This this podcast is goes all over the world, but I want to make sure that people really want to know you as, as an author, but also use your ins- inspiration. There's so much amazing talent in in Africa. Yes, so much amazing talent, and I want to be able to use your success story to help inspire others to enter the rise of the future. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a perfect perfectly viable way yes. to to get your launch. The contest will fly you up to Los Angeles for a week long workshop. You'll be able to meet such amazing people as yourself, <laughs> as one of the judges, um, and it's just it's it's proven itself. You know, for at least forty percent of the winners will go on then to, you know, good careers in writing. Which is, I've had various magazines and other authors say, nothing's more done more for the science fiction and fantasy than any other source, just in terms of bringing it up because it's blind judge, so everybody's got an equal opportunity. And so that's that's one thing that's really good. So thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Nettie. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.